When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You still here, are you? We're on On the Edge with Andrew Gold. You may be listening to this one first, actually, but you may have heard the other episode with Dr. Shaham Das about the Chad and Laurie Daybell murders, their children found in their backyard, absolutely horrific. Um, and Dr. Shaham Das on this episode will be looking at Warren Jeffs, who was the leader of the fundamentalist LDS Church, the fundamentalist Latter-day Saints Church. Um, it's a cult that is an offshoot of the Mormon church. It is not the same as the Mormon church. It is a very extreme, uh, horrible, like big family full of incest and mad stuff. And Warren Jeffs was at the head of it and was doing all sorts of things with underage girls and putting people together and, and, and pushing, coercing people to do things together. It always comes down to sex, doesn't it? So... Dr. Shaham is giving us a bit of a psychological profile, what might be going on in their heads, what could have been done to stop this kind of abuse, what what we can do, what we can learn from it. It's all going to be happening. Check out his YouTube channel, A Psych for Sore Minds, and keep listening to this one. There's lots of interesting stuff coming up. There's the the Wim Hof expose is is coming up very soon. Wim Hof being the uh, almost cult leader, but also sort of hero of meditators and breathwork people, the Ice Man. That's next. But now... But now you're on the edge with, no, not with, you're on the edge of, I should say, first, because that's how I do my little catchphrase. You're on the edge of uh, the Warren Jeffs scandal or saga or just horrible things he was doing with Dr. Shaham Das. Dr. Shaham Das, how would you diagnose Warren Jeffs in terms of mental health disorders based on the available case information? Thank you so much, Mr. Gold, for having me on again. Uh, always a pleasure. Did you want me to add to any of that with some stuff that I know? Or Yeah, go just... on, go on. Okay. What extra stuff have you got? Okay, so that was um, pretty thorough. I'm just going to add a couple of things because I think they're relevant. His own father had 19 or 20 wives and 60 children. So Warren Jeffs was, literally grew up amongst 59 siblings and wow. he was homeschooled. I do think that's relevant because like, it'd be a very different picture for somebody who's, who's intentionally tried to set up their own cult versus somebody like him who's, who's grown up with these beliefs. So he thinks this is normal. Um, he, within a week of his own father dying, he married, so as I said, his father had 19 or 20 wives. He married all but two of his father's wives. So I guess they'd be his stepmothers. Um, they, the belief in, fundamental Mormon fundamentalism and the fundamentalist church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints. Did I get that all right? The fundamentalist belief is that plural marriage will equals exaltation in the afterlife. So another way of saying that is that they believe that, that you have to do that or by doing that, it helps you kind of get to heaven, I guess. 
Something else I think is relevant is that apparently in 2008, there was a raid on their compound because there was a tip off by an alleged 16 year old girl who said that she was forced into marriage and she had a child with a 50 year old man. And then the police raided it and was convinced that she didn't exist. And apparently they couldn't find her. And some women and children were removed, but remarkably, they didn't find any evidence of any abuse at that point. They did later. So to me, that suggests that the women and children must have denied what was going on or at least stood up for everyone else or the other men, which is in itself insane, but it also probably would have contributed to the men not caring about or not appreciating the kind of depth of their depravity. Um, finally, his own nephew, so Warren Jeff's nephew in 1980 said that he was abused when he was five or six and that nephew's brother committed suicide after Mr. Jeff's apparently uh, um, abused him himself. Um, and yeah, so as you said, he's on a life sentence. His earliest release date of parole would be 2038. He tried to hang himself in prison 2007. He tried to fast himself, like starve himself to death, was put in a coma uh, during his prison time. Um, okay, so that's all a bit of background. What I think about his mental health, I think that he is clearly a narcissist. So he's somebody that loves to be in the center of attention. Your typical narcissist uh, craves, uh, not only craves attention, but hates criticism. But it, I, I take it one step further with Warren Jeffs in that not only does he hate criticism, but he denounces anything that is seen as criticism as lies told by the devil himself. So he actually said to his followers when the police were bringing up all the stuff in his court case that this is all, all lies. And the reason I think that's relevant is because he's already, by, by being the leader of this weird kind of belief system in this religion, he's, he's already got like a framework of being able to do what he wants because anything that he wants to do is kind of exaltated as great behavior and is going to help him, you know, achieve stuff in the afterlife, like marrying young girls and everything that he's criticized for. He conveniently can say, this is because of the devil. Do you see what I mean? So it's almost like he's, he's set himself up to be able to do what he wants to do. So that's one thing that really stands out. Another thing, and you might think I'm joking here, but I'm being serious, is the inbreeding. So the very fact that lots of these men and women that are getting married are all related to each other. You know, there's cousins marrying cousins, um, the sexual abuse amongst siblings. I don't know if any of the kids were of siblings, but it wouldn't surprise me. And the reason that's relevant is because, as you'll probably know, inbreeding can lead to like learning disabilities. So. In fact, not just learning disabilities, any kind of physical or psychiatric illness, because those rare genes that only exist, like one in a thousand people come together when you have like incest or inbreeding within a community. Uh, so that's not to make an excuse for him, but I just imagine that a lot of him and his followers probably have much lower than average IQs as well. And finally, he was two months premature, uh, which in itself is not a huge risk factor, but it's probably one of many factors that would have kind of affected his, his own, um, intelligence and his own uh, his own sort of mental state. So is your diagnosis low intelligence? Um, yeah, I, I, well, I can't, the only way, if you, if you remember during our last, um, our last chat, when we were talking about, um, L L uh, Chad Dable and, and Laurie Vallow, I was saying that there's no psychiatric illness that can be kind of diagnosed through any kind of scan. That I stand by that. That is correct. But you can diagnose a learning disability by an IQ test. In fact, by definition, a learning disability has to be done by an IQ test because learning disability is a low IQ, right? And unless somebody's faking an IQ test, it is, that's the only real way you can confidently make that diagnosis. So I've not been able to do that on him, but I wouldn't be surprised with that amount of inbreeding and a lack of educational attainment and 
drive and motivation and opportunity, I think you would have a lower than average IQ, definitely. Having IQ tests, I've just heard bits and pieces, gone out of fashion a little bit as, as measures for um, intelligence and different kinds of intelligence. You, your basic one out of 100 IQ test has, but nowadays it's far more complicated. It's like a battery is what they call it of uh, neuropsychological testing. So it's not just about your overall IQ, it's about like processing speed and verbal intelligence. Oh, so they've got it pretty like nailed down for like, this is intelligence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. I'm just going to go back to say something, if you don't mind, Andrew, because it's mm. a thought that I had, is I, when, I, when I first read about Warren Jeffs, I wondered to myself, is he a psychopath, right? And I think that the term psychopathy is overused a lot and people use it willy-nilly to, to describe anybody that does something crazy or ununderstandable or extremely violent. Whereas in actuality, a psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, is cunning and manipulative, is quite charming, is quite deceitful and slips into society. Now, what I think Warren Jeffs is a psychopath within his own community. So what I mean by that is I think he's able, and it has actually been quite successful at manipulating other people within his religious group, within his cult, because of what we were saying before, because he can, he says that he's got like a direct line to knowing what God wants and he can denounce things. But the reason I'm mentioning all of this is I don't think he'd be a psychopath outside in the real world because he's not he's not needed to learn to be clever enough to manipulate people in the real world. That's really interesting because I've never heard things like psychopathy and these clinical diagnoses being spoken about uh, in such a fluid way. And I suppose I suppose that in a sense that does make sense I guess because we try so hard we've got these pattern seeking brains uh, and those of us who are not qualified in these things like to go well that is a psychopath that is not one and yet we talk about fluidity and all sorts of other things and spectrums and things and I can see what you seem to be saying then is that somebody being a psychopath is a very subjective test really because it's it's so difficult and and it can sort of depend on the environment uh, yeah in in this very rare case i can't really think of any cases that i've ever assessed and i've assessed a lot where i where somebody is a psychopath in one environment but not another but this is exceptionally bizarre because we're talking about a man not just a man but a community that lives by different rules to everybody else in society yeah he's like schrodinger's psychopath that's the cleverest joke i've ever made <laughs> so um do, do you well actually um okay so from a psychiatrist's perspective what could have been a contributing factor in just manipulation and control over his followers so i think the fact that he has a very strong sense of this very bizarre belief system because he himself has only grown up in this environment homeschooled with his 60 siblings so i think he is a hundred percent convinced in his own mind that, you know it's acceptable to marry multiple women and that you know they can be underage he, he thinks that's he doesn't see anything wrong with that because he was brought up in that environment uh, in terms of the actual victims themselves it's quite similar actually i think because they've they've been some of them have been like born into this environment, especially the young, vulnerable females, that they don't know any different. I saw an interview on YouTube quite just today, actually, about one of his wives who was 18. And just as a side note, what I found quite interesting is she said that he didn't consummate the marriage. He wasn't really interested in that because he was, you know, one of those P words that I don't want to say to ruin your channels, but he's attracted to, to younger children. So he wasn't interested in her in that kind of way. Uh, but anyway, that's, that's off on a tangent. Um, and that she was told since she was nine years old that she was going to marry him. So she was kind of pro pre-warned to 
get used to it basically. So I think they're brainwashed at such a young age and they don't know anything different. They don't know what normal society is. They don't know what normal values or beliefs are that they don't really have the, the kind of, not even intelligence. Intelligence is the wrong word, but well, not even curiosity, but they just don't have the, they don't have like the comparative knowledge to know what's, what's right and what's wrong. So I think that's part of it. I think fear is part of it as well. They, because again, because they're probably told that the outside world is, is a scary place full of demons and heathens that they do whatever they have to do to, to stay within this kind of um, fundamentalist family. It's, um, do you, do you, uh, how much credence do you give to the word, the term brainwash? Cause I know you've got to use it just in terms of simplicity for people to understand what you're talking about. But I've also heard some people say that brainwashing is sort of like many things uh, among lay people like me, it's sort of exaggerated as a facet that brainwashing isn't necessarily a, a, a real thing. And then other people say, yes, it is this, you know, where do you stand on that? Um, I definitely believed in it, believe in it as a concept. Uh, I suppose it depends on, on your definition of it, right? So if you, if you're talking about somebody who can be convinced to do something completely ununderstandable with, with very little effort and they say that they were convinced to do that thing, then to me, that sounds like a convenient excuse, uh, when it's not the, not the truth. But I can definitely think of cases that I've assessed myself where people who have are quite vulnerable can be persuaded to do something. So I'll be specific. I've seen several, at least three or four cases of somebody with either a learning disability, which we already talked about, or something like autism, who are manipulated by drug dealing gangs, so county lines. And what they'll do is they'll find these people who are vulnerable, who are alone, who are marginalized, who you know don't have friends, they don't have people that look out for them. And they will approach these individuals and befriend them and convince them that they're part of this happy family, this gang, you know, you're the same as us. We've got weed, we've got women and blah, blah, blah. And love bombing. Yeah. 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 Love bombing. And then make them persuade them to do some of their dirty work for them. So they take all the risk. They, they're the ones that deal the drugs and make all the drop offs and take the money everywhere. Uh, and then obviously over time, this is grooming what I'm talking about, but the behavior towards them changes from being like really pally to just basically manipulating them and then intimidating them. So that would be an example, even though I wouldn't use the clinical term brainwashing one of my reports, I think that is brainwashing. That is convincing somebody of doing something over a longer period of time, like grooming. I like the term coercive control. Yeah. Yeah. Coercion is like the proper term, clinical term, I think, for brainwashing. Interesting. So you've you said that obviously Warren Jeffs seems to, to have been a true believer and he believed all his stuff. Do you think there were signs of calculated manipulation at all? And, uh, and can those things coexist? I suppose I'm thinking of confirmation biases where you sort of will yourself to believe things that you want because you want to be able to do these things. Yeah. 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 I, I just want to be crystal clear, even though I think that he believes a lot of the things that he says. I also think that he's a evil predatory bastard. And I think he knows that. Uh, and I'll tell you why, because he tried to evade the police, number one, and because he denied, he tried to deny a lot of the things that he did until evidence was brought out against him. So if, if, if he generally didn't think that what he was doing was wrong, which is a different concept to, to, uh, having a set of values in the way that you're brought up then he wouldn't have tried to do those things, right? So I do think that he, he knew what he was doing. Yes, except, and this is what I was trying to say to Mike King last time when we talked about the Chad Daybell case, because he's a former um, police investigator who brought down cults and stuff, and he said a similar thing. And my point was like, well, yeah, but he could still be a true believer, but he thinks the police are also the bad guys, and he knows they're going to put him in prison, so he feels like you know, he's, he's um, able to tell this lie to the police because it's like, you know, they're the baddies. And even though he knows what he's doing is good, he thinks what he's doing is good. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, I suppose in theory that is possible, but 
in reality, he must have seen and appreciated the suffering of his victims. He must have known that some of the 12-year-olds, 14-year-olds that he was marrying didn't want to marry him. So regardless of, even in that circumstance, he, he still, there's no reason that he wouldn't have been able to understand that other people were suffering from his actions. That makes sense. Yeah, it does. And let's say Warren Jeffs is sent to see you. Uh, firstly, just from a personal level, you're the psychiatrist. Is part of you hating this guy? <laughs> is there part of you going like, you horrible? Or are you just so desensitized and professional by now? And then what would you sort of do to sort of start? What's your first, you know, day one, what are you going to do? Yeah. That's a difficult one. If you ask me almost always, I would say that I'm a psychiatrist, I'm a doctor first, and I've taken a Hippocratic Oath, which is to never do harm, and my perspective has always been to try and help people, no matter how heinous what they've done is. I suppose this one is really, really stretching that limit though, isn't it? I mean, there's, there's, there doesn't seem to be any kind of redeeming factor or humanity. I mean, I suppose the first thing is that if I was doing a medical legal report on him, so as, as you know, most of my work now is as an expert witness, so I decide whether somebody is mentally ill for the court, then I would say that he's got some very unusual beliefs, but he's not mentally ill. Yeah, he's narcissistic, possibly psychopathic, which are personality disorders, but he's not mentally ill. So that's off the bat. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be giving evidence that exonerates him in any way. But I don't think you're asking that. I think you're asking if he was coming to me for treatment, what would I do? So say if I was the psychiatrist in a prison uh, and he's already been sort of sentenced for, for life, what would I do? And I suppose my answer to that would be, um, I think I, I, even though I think what he's done is completely vile, I would still feel obliged to do a full psychiatric assessment on him and see if there's anything that I can do to improve any of the symptoms. Um, if I was in the knowledge that he's in, in, in prison for life anyway. So if he was depressed, then I'd give him antidepressants. If he was open to any kind of therapy to, to help challenge his beliefs, then I wouldn't give that myself because it'd be a psychologist, not a psychiatrist, but I would sort of sign him up for that. Um, yeah, I think you, you have to, or I should separate the evil of what somebody's done from their psychiatric needs. So I suppose another way of saying that is if I was a GP in, in a, um, prison and somebody had come in, like him had come in with, I don't know, gout or prostate problem, would I treat him or not? And I suppose the average GP would say, yes, I would. So I would think in the same way I would treat what I could. Yeah. I suppose you've got to, it's, yeah, it's your job. I, I totally respect that. And, uh, but then if he's got narcissism, if he's got, psychopathy i imagine there's not a lot you can do a few decades ago private citizens used to be largely that private what's changed the internet think about everything you've browsed searched for watched or tweeted now imagine all of that data being crawled through collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record your record Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about, but in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by 
other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com slash heretics and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn dot com slash heretics to learn more. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on What Could Go Right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, so narcissism, well, I suppose all personality disorders are quite difficult to treat, narcissism especially, psychopathy especially, and uh, the reason being is because, especially for psychopaths, they're so clever and manipulative that they know exactly what to do and what to say to make it look as if they're getting better. So I suppose in a case like his, I mean, he's 70-odd, did I get that right? 67. 67, right? And he's going to be released at the earliest in 2038, which is 15 years from now. So through maths that he's going to be... 82. 82, check him out. 82 years old. So he's going to be 82 at the, at the youngest when he's released. And that's only if, if he's released in his first parole hearing. So probably he's not going to have that much longer in his life on the outside and probably unbalanced. He's not going to be able to do that much damage at the age of 82, especially with everybody knowing his background. So is it worth putting your resources in treating somebody like that? It's probably not actually. I'm not even talking about my um, ethical judgment. I just mean clinically, is it worth it? It's probably not for the amount of money, time and resources and psychological therapy it would take. There's no point trying to reconvert somebody to not be a psychopath at 82. <laughs> are, there, are those, well, can you reconvert? So can you take someone down from being a psychopath? Yes, um, but it's quite rare and it's really hard to do. From my experience, it's usually because they've gained some insight themselves. So it doesn't matter if a thousand forensic psychiatrists, even if they're as handsome as me, tells them that they have to change, they're not going to, they're not going to listen. But psych, not just psychopaths, uh, career criminals, antisocial personality people, sometimes not in their 20s or their 30s, maybe not even in their 40s, but they get to their 50s and they spend all of their lives in and out of psychiatry units or in and out of prison. So just purely because of that, they start to have some insight and they want to turn their lives around. But you need that internal epiphany because if you, if they don't truly want to change from inside, then it's not going to happen. And sometimes it's that. It's, it's the fact that they look back at their lives compared to their peers and their you know, sibling people they went to school with and they can see how much they've diverged. So it's not because they've gained empathy for their victims or for the average human being is because they want something they want to not have to go through the same cycle again. So I guess what you're treating then is not the root 
psychopathy inside them it's just sort of look you're basically saying very gradually trying to make them realize look if you want an easier nicer life and to get on with people you need to start acting in a way that is a bit more cooperative yeah exactly that exactly that and so the therapy would be like repeatedly going through various scenarios and in it if they were properly engaging if they were <clears throat> not just box ticking and saying the right things then they would look at their old way of thinking and how they'd react and old assumptions and paranoia etc versus reality and, and try and just cause a shift in thinking from a psychiatrist perspective again can you explain stockholm syndrome in the context of the relationships jeff uh, jeff's had with his followers yeah so stockholm syndrome is usually uh in a very intense but quite short-lived situation so what happens is, uh, so I don't know if you know, but the, the term comes from, I believe, a bank robbery that happened in Stockholm, I think in the 1960s, where the people, the victims that were in the bank generally thought they were going to die. And then a number of them, it was, it was more than just one, uh, seemed to somehow connect with and relate to their captors to the point that some of them tried to protect them afterwards, even when the threat had gone. So that's what Stockholm syndrome is. It's kind of not necessarily falling in love. That's probably a bit too, uh, a bit too strong a term, but they, they feel like a psychological connection um and they feel obliged to like help the the captor afterwards and it's 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 basically a very odd and extreme reaction to a traumatic event where you perceive anything that's ordinary fairly objective behavior as being exceptionally kind and generous so some you know your your um captor gives you some food you think and because you're at the edge thinking you're going to die you kind of multiply this in your mind and it seems much more kind than it is and that's that's part of the psychiatric uh, psychological process i think this is different because i think it's more grooming because it's not so the difference is stockholm syndrome you have already a normal psychological makeup then something extremely life-threatening is about to happen and in that context you misinterpret what happens in that short period of time and miss miss sort of process it Whereas what's going on with his with his victims, I think, is much more to do with like dependency and um, long term abuse and grooming. So Stockholm syndrome and grooming are not quite compatible, and this is more grooming, I think. And then, what is the psychological impact for these victims when that's you know happened to them, and they were part of the FLDS community under Jeff's control, and many of them were abused? I mean, where do you even start? When how are their lives going to be? Yeah, it's really hard to unpack it all, isn't it? Because on the one hand, it's easy for us as outsiders to say that they must be really relieved to, to leave this scenario and be able to have this freedom. And probably some of them are, but I also imagine, especially those that have been indoctrinated from a very young age, that everything they've known, this entire world has just suddenly collapsed, right? So for them, it just must be overwhelming. It must be really scary as well, because now you're forced to live by the rules and values of society, which you, you at best didn't know about and at worst were convinced were like dangerous and evil. And would they suffer from things like uh, PTSD? Yeah, they could do. Yeah, absolutely. Because they were sort of assaulted, weren't they, sexually? So absolutely post-traumatic stress disorder. So as you'll know, it's like flashbacks, nightmares, uh, hypervigilance, always being on edge, emotional coldness, avoidance of triggers that remind you of your original traumas, all of those things. Yeah. I was uh, doing something recently where I was looking into... Um, um, hypnosis and stuff like that and there are ways with hypnosis that you can make somebody at least temporarily forget um, um, traumatic events that have happened in their lives um, but even though they've forgotten them they still reacted to triggers that were similar to the thing that was traumatic 
Is that, I mean, that's quite deep in the brain, isn't it? These kind of traumatic triggers. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not convinced that hypnosis can cure it. So I'm, I'm, I'm an agnostic if I'm, I'm not so close minded to think that it absolutely definitely can't, but I'm, I've personally never seen a successful case of that working for PTSD. I've seen it for other things like you know, anxiety or stopping smoking and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, uh, the trauma th- to even reach the threshold for that kind of disorder is pretty deep. Um, and it's pretty scarring. So it's really hard to, to, to overcome. And, and I'm, I'm knowing, I'm looking, I'm thinking of it again. It's that P word that I don't want to overuse on this show. Peanut butter. Um, the peanut butter people. Oh God. <laughs> so they, he sort of, what does it say about humans when you've got like cult leaders and they do that with the children and their son does it to the children? I mean, does that imply that this can be passed down through generations? Does it imply it's something inherent to all people if they become evil, like evil men? Like, what do we think about that? Um, that's a really hard question to answer because it's just so sort of variable. I think there's definitely some people who've, and I've interviewed one for a, um, a Channel 4 documentary who had shown off there, um, who were born into a cult and have only known cult life, but have realized at some point that this is all wrong and I need to get out. Definitely there are people like that exist. But equally, there are people maybe like Warren Jeffs who um, either they they have those kind of peanut butter tendencies themselves and it's which could actually be because they went through those experiences themselves and their children. Uh, we know that, it, that these things tend to go in cycles and it's a convenient kind of structure for them to continue their beliefs. So they don't, it's convenient that they don't have to question themselves. They don't have to think that they don't have to deal with the guilt or even think about the guilt because, you know, every, this is normal. This is what everybody else has done when I've been growing up. My dad did it. My other relatives did it. So yeah, so I'm not really answering your question, but I think it's, I think there's a wide spectrum and it is, it's different for different people. Different people have different ways, uh, levels of awareness and social maturity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I guess there's like, I remember learning that there was like, uh, like one out of a hundred men are exclusively, you know, attracted to those people, to younger people, you know, and, um, I think it was like a lot higher, the percentage who had some attraction to them, but it wasn't exclusive. And so they never offended really, because at least they could have a normal life with uh, an adult. They were still attracted to to adults. Um, So it's just such a complex thing that we don't talk enough about. And it's so complicated. And I guess for that higher percentage of people who know that they have that attraction for, you know, uh, for children, um, that I guess societally it's been sort of pushed out of them. But if you've grown up in a cult and that's all you knew as a child and that's all you've done and that seems normal to you, you wouldn't have that kind of societal education. Absolutely. And I think what, this might be a slightly controversial thing to say, but I think that the same as almost every other person on this planet, if somebody has offended against a child in that way, I 100% believe they should be punished. But I think there's a grey area of people, like you say, who have these kind of inclinations, haven't acted upon it and don't want to act upon it. And in fact, want the opposite. They want to get rid of these thoughts and beliefs. And it's a fine line between rightly so punishing and prosecuting those ones that offend versus trying to offer support to those that want those beliefs to go away because there's a risk of them doing something. And if somebody, again, as a doctor, if somebody comes to me or comes to a service saying, I have these thoughts and I want them to stop, what can I do? I think that's that's a better outcome for society than somebody who is too embarrassed or too ashamed or too worried about the consequences, uh, the stigma, or simply getting beaten up, who doesn't do that and lets it get worse to the point where they do offend. 
Yeah, I've written, I, I think, you know, I wrote a book, I think, about it. I haven't released it yet because it's just going to get me torn apart. So I'm, right, I'm releasing another book first and then just seeing how that goes. I've got a chapter about those people and sort of gradually seeing, testing the water with that because it is a, it is a really interesting one because so many children are offended against uh, and if there's a way to stop that or curb that, then we've got to do it, even if it means having to think about some really uh, controversial things. Can I ask you a question? Sorry, did you, am I, am I remembering this right? You also interviewed somebody, was it for the a BBC documentary, who was one of those people? Is that right? It was It was for this. The, the BBC documentary was Exorcism, and he was oh, he was with a, it was a 19-year-old woman, so it wasn't quite that. Okay. Uh, but he was like 55, and she had schizophrenia, and it was ridiculous, the whole thing. And she, he was the priest. But um, yeah, I wrote the book, and I did interview for this podcast, I think it's episode, like one of the first ever episodes, I think it was number six, uh, a 19-year-old German boy, or maybe he wasn't in Germany, I think he might have been in Spain, but... Uh, who was the head boy or class president of his school and was one of those people and he said he's never offended and we had this conversation back and forth and it was interesting to hear some of his biases because he was a bit by he did need the help of a psychiatrist but obviously didn't, didn't want to go and get one so that's have, have you dealt with people like that yeah yeah absolutely um so i've dealt with people who have never offended who have offended to a low kind of level i don't want to say the words because <laughs> i don't want to ruin your channel but like who've not done anything sort of physical but flashing that kind of thing uh, or masturbating um, who are kind of I wouldn't say on the verge but who have the potential to offend in the future as well that, that go to like personality disorder units so what kind of vibe did you get from that individual like were you I suppose I'm asking were you able to kind of separate what what his thought processes and intentions were from the rest of him I think, yeah, I think as a journalist, and the same as you, it's obviously a different profession to being a psychiatrist, but there is two things. There's that professionalism. Your mind is always telling you, be professional. Come on, you're, you're trying to get the story here. You're trying to be neutral. There's no point just going, I hate you. That's not going to get you anywhere. Um, and then there's also just um, the desensitivity. You know, once you've interviewed enough of these people over the years, you still think all the things. You have the same morals you had at the beginning, and you're still disgusted by a lot of the thoughts, but you're able to sort of be there without having too much emotion. Um, and the vibe I got from him, you know, I was sitting there. He just seemed very personable, very nice. He was made the class president of his school for a reason. Uh, and I think he was very honest and he really felt that he wasn't a danger to children and that he would never do something like that. But I felt he was naive because he was 18 years old and I don't think he really thought about what it would mean years and years of not having fulfilling relationships with adults and what kind of toll that might take on him. And he did say one thing that, that did worry me, which was that he needs to be around kids um, so he so he takes like extra activities where he's teaching the kids and he's close with them and stuff like that. Yeah, and I was like, but you know, and he said that actually helps me to not offend. And I was like, no, no, that's a bias you've got because if you were never around them, then you couldn't offend. You know, that's the. And he was like, no, no, I need to be around them so that I don't. And so I thought, give that a few years, and that might be very dangerous if you don't get some real good help. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Shaham Das. People, please do give him some love. Tell him you came over to him from, from here, maybe from hearing him here. He might have liked that. That might be... Uh 
satisfying for him that he gave up his time and it has resulted in new subscribers. It's on YouTube. I know this audio only goes out to you audio people anyway. Perhaps you are anti-YouTube. But if you are not, go check out On the Edge with Andrew Gold there as well if you like to sort of look at the YouTube stuff sometimes. Uh, And that's all I've got to say for you. Big episode coming up with Wim Hof. Well, not with Wim Hof, with a detractor of Wim Hof, but also a proponent of Wim Hof. It's a very strange one, and I think you guys will enjoy it. I'll see you there. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.